I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC, the podcast where we welcome readers, listeners, lovers, watchers of the Babysitter's Club of all ages, genders, races, basically anybody who wants to be a part of our generation of people who love the Babysitter's Club. And we show that love um, on this podcast by reading the books in order, one at a time, and talking about them. And it's still one of my very favorite things to do, especially when we get a book this good to talk about. I'm so excited for this week, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, so Kate, why don't you tell us, what are we talking about today? Well, first, before I say what book we're reading, I am even more excited now to talk about this because I did not like this book at all. I thought it was so boring. Really? <laughs> so we're going to have a yeah. lot to talk about. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, I'm so excited because I just, I found this one so much fun. Well, we'll get into it. So we are talking about okay. book 30 in the regular series. It's Marianne and the Great Romance. Lauren, why don't you tell us, you know, the the stats of this book and give us the back of the book description and we can move quickly into our discussion because it sounds like we're going to have a lot to talk about. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Let's do this. All right. So as usual, I'm going to give us the back of the book description. And then Kate, why don't you tell us immediately what happens next? Because I can, I'm, I'm like chomping at the bit. <laughs> All right. So this book, as Kate said, is Mary Ann and the Great Romance. It was released in January 1990, a brand new decade. And I, the early 90s uh, of this one just like is so intense. I love it so much. It, it's that really thin slice of late 80s, early 90s, uh, before grunge really took over. And uh, anyway, we will definitely get into that fashion watch, I'm certain. In any case, this is Anne M. Martin still. And this does kind of feel like she's ramping up to like, leave the series, tying up some loose ends, leading up to some big events, doing all the big life things. So this one is all about the wedding. So here's the back of the book. It's Official. Marianne's father and Dawn's mother are getting married. The babysitters think it's so romantic, especially since Mr. Spear and Mrs. Schaefer first fell in love when they were in high school. But nothing can top Marianne and Dawn's excitement. They want a huge wedding with beautiful dresses and lots of presents and a five-layer cake. After all, this isn't just any wedding. Marianne and Dawn are going to be babysitters, best friends, and sisters, too. I would say for once, the level of excitement in that fully matches the level of excitement of the characters within the book. And honestly, my excitement, but clearly not yours. Well, one thing I think is funny about the back of the book description, they reference specifically a five-layer cake. I'm pretty sure Dawn and Marianne want a four-layer cake. Like They are pretty specific about that. <laughs> it's like, why? It's not like they just talk about a big cake and so the back of the book says like a five-layer cake. Like, you have a specific number. Like, use the specific number. <laughs> it's a very nitpicky thing. <laughs> I cannot wait to get into this. Okay. Tell us the back of the book. Okay. So we'll we'll dive into my my slightly more detailed description, um, so we can maybe get a little bit more of a nuanced description of everything instead of just you know hyper elevated you know excitement about a wedding. So the Marianne specific plot. So based on the title of this book, you might assume that a quote unquote great romance 
perhaps the one that's been brewing between Don and Marianne's parents since Don moved back to town, might take center stage. Yeah, not so much. In an, inter- in an interesting twist, the B-plot ends up being mu- the more narrator-focused part of the story and the inspiration for the title of the book, maybe because the trouble with twins already exists. More on that later. But yes, the eponymous great romance turns out to be the one between Richard and Sharon. Richard uses Sharon's birthday as an excuse to plan a surprise involving the girls so the adults can get officially engaged and announce it to their daughters. Marianne and Don immediately get hyped for wedding planning, only to be told that their parents don't want any big event. Our girls work their magic, though, and talk them into a small wedding in a chapel, followed by lunch in a private room at the restaurant where the birthday surprise engagement occurred. Related to the wedding is the sowing of seeds for the inevitable meltdown between Marianne and Dawn in the next book, when Marianne understandably gets upset about having to move to Dawn's house and adjust her life. Dawn and Marianne go through cycles of fighting and being excited, ending up deciding to share Dawn's bedroom, rather than Marianne taking the current guest bedroom as her own. But who knows what will actually happen as we end with a cliffhanger where they're each jumping for Sharon's bouquet at the reception. So the Babysitter's Club specific plot. The seemingly main plot of this book centers around Marilyn and Carolyn Arnold, the twins that Mallory had trouble with a few books back. We in the Babysitter's Club thought that their issues had been addressed when their mom agreed that they no longer had to dress the same and do all the same activities, save for a few exceptions. But it turns out that they have more conflict between themselves, with Carolyn being more popular at school because Marilyn is, quote, bossy, and their parents apparently choosing favorites, whether consciously or subconsciously. Marilyn is feeling excluded and invents an imaginary friend that it takes until the end of the book for Stacy to finally figure out his imaginary, and the girls fight over the course of several babysitting jobs. Marion finally suggests that maybe they should move to separate rooms and their mom is into it. Hmm, I wonder if this reasoning will come into play in our next book. The move to separate rooms allows the girls to become closer and more friendly with each other, and Marilyn is included in Carolyn's girls' club with Haley, Vanessa, and Charlotte. Which, side note, where's Becca in all of this? Because isn't she Charlotte's best friend? Christy also has a babysitting job for her siblings. It's pretty unnoteworthy, except that it also involves some sibling rivalry and jealousy. So I really think I need to clarify that when I say I loved this one and I'm so excited to talk about it, I don't mean that I actually thought this was a good book. I had a blast reading this one because it is kind of all over the place. I thought that there were some things that I thought it did really interestingly in ways I didn't expect that I liked more than I thought I would. But overall, I loved it because there were so many little weird details throughout this. I literally have a what the fuck list that I was keeping as I went through. And you touched on some of them in your, um, or you rather, you hinted, alluded <laughs> to a couple of them in your uh, recap. And there's a lot we didn't. So Let's, I want to start with like sort of the big ideas you mentioned in your, I mean, as we always do, but for me, the big idea sort of comes from that weird place where you talked about where it's it's not really the B plot, but I, I didn't, wouldn't really say that the like sibling rivalry plot was the A plot either because it's also tied to the wedding stuff. It was, I thought this one was an interesting one because it didn't to me follow formula quite as much where like everything was about sibling rivalry, but what was happening with Marianne's like version of that was herself. I don't know. I'm I'm not explaining this very well, but do you understand? Do, do you see what I mean? Or am I totally off track here? I feel like maybe I know where you're going with this, but not enough to help you nope. articulate it yourself, <laughs> which I know sometimes I'm able to do that. And this is not one of those times. But I guess, yeah, I mean, I, for the way that this book sort of lays out, there's a lot of that sort of 
jealousy and concern about siblings getting different things. And, you know, Marianne, the way that it hits her here, since she's not actually living with Dawn yet, her bigger issue is like, why do I have to change my life completely? And why does Dawn get to stay in her house, in her room and continue to live, you know, basically the same way that she has been not taking into account the fact that Marianne and her dad moving into their house is going to be a disruption to the life that Dawn and Sharon had before. So, but because it's the Marianne book, we're getting more her being like, well, it's not fair to me. Why, you know, why did Dawn find out that we were moving to their house before I did? Why do I have to, you know, worry about whether or not Tigger is going to be welcome in my new house because Sharon doesn't like cats? Like, I think maybe that's where you're going with it. <laughs> uh, kind of. I think it's more that the Mary Ann gives equal consideration, or I guess rather the book. So Mary Ann, as the narrator of the book, gives more equal consideration and time and emotion even, I guess, to both the wedding and all of the things that you mentioned about what she's worried about there, as well as the Marilyn and Carolyn, that sibling rivalry subplot, because it's so inextricably tied. Like, she's actively connecting but she's but the th- that's what the thing is is she's not right. actively connecting their issues to hers but the, but the book as a is, reader you can tell cuz yeah i think that was that maybe is what you're referencing that i sort of alluded to like marianne is realizing things about marilyn and carolyn and the book is sort of paralleling that with her and don or you know what is about to probably happen in the next book with don and marianne but marianne herself is not seeing you know, like, you know, when they're talking about, you know, Marilyn and Carolyn, they need their separate space and that'll, you know, allow them to remain close mm-hmm. because they don't have to share everything. And, you know, they can have their own personalities and that'll make them – and I think it might even be Stacy that says it, you know, like, absence makes the heart grow fonder without her actually saying it that way. And I think that right. it'll be interesting to see – and it, it, I don't know if we'll necessarily get it in the same way since the next book is a Dawn book, but, like, my hope is that – Maybe Dawn will realize it the same way, but, you know, since all of our babysitters are sort of seeing the progression of Marilyn and Carolyn through this book and, you know, figuring out that, yes, even though they're allowed to dress differently and act, you know, sort of project their own independence because they still have this shared space that is not either of theirs individually, they still have that conflict and allowing them to sort of have their separate spaces so they can come together when they want to and be apart when they don't want to. Hopefully in the next book – you know, since it sounds like Marianne is planning to move into Dawn's bedroom instead of into her own bedroom, hopefully there the, – my guess is there'll probably be parallels of, you know, Dawn borrowing something from Marianne without asking and, you know, being like, why why are you in my room? And, you know, Dawn referring it to her room, which she does in this book. And so it's – I think hopefully that'll be sort of a carryover and someone will maybe make a reference to Marilyn and Carolyn's situation in the next book to help resolve Dawn and Marianne's conflict. Hopefully. Yeah, I seriously hope so, because that is definitely on my what the fuck list. Because the whole point of the whole like moral of the or Danny Tanner moment of the Marilyn Carolyn storyline is that all they needed was separate rooms so they could have that little bit of space. Mm-hmm. And they're all so proud of themselves for figuring that out, like you said, patting themselves on the back. And then Marianne turns around and Don. And Dawn. And Dawn is like, you know what? I really think it'd be fun to live in the same room. And Marianne's like, you know what? Yes. And I'm like, seriously? Like, you guys are smarter than this. You're better than this. 
So I think we should take like just half a step back and talk just a little bit, go back to our predictions from last time and sort of talk a little bit because this one is really unique in structure, not just in the way that I was trying to horribly articulate, but in in actuality for these books in that, Kate, you were um, even more right than you knew in calling the next two books the first real continuation, because this book ends in a to be continued. Mm -hmm. And so uh, our predictions from last week, I I think both of us were pretty clear on that we thought there was going to be more of a a, a dividing line between these two books. And like Mm -hmm. this one was all about the happy and the wedding. And then the next one was all about the strife. So I think it's worth noting now that I, that, you know, we were sort of not like, lamenting, but we were like, oh, I I know we're not supposed to be talking about this. But in a way, I'm really glad that we did because it almost feels strange to be talking about this. Like this is really a part one Mm -hmm. because we're, we don't have the whole, whole story yet. And I, I just think it's really fascinating that, and I think that that's one of the things that honestly I appreciated about it. The reasons that I liked it is because it wasn't the focus of the wedding and it wasn't about the dresses and the frilliness and it was more about this like real real issue of of what this would actually be like for these kids and knowing that we get you know multiple books to explore it which is something we've been really really hoping for so that's mm-hmm. really exciting to see i don't know if maybe i'm giving things way too much credit but it felt very realistic to me for who both mrs Schaefer and mr spear sharon and richard are that they would not want like big wedding or a fuss or anything and like very much you know treating this like a kind of a business transaction and it absolutely makes sense for who Marianne is to be super disappointed by that so I've been like laying out the things unintentionally that I loved so much about it both I I think I loved it so much in total because there were those things like I said that I really loved about it and then I have a whole what the fuck list of things that are just so wild <laughs> they made me laugh so it was a nice mix for me of both so I'm really bummed to find to see that you found it so boring so especially because I had the distinct thought while reading this that this to me felt like the difference between Stacy divorce like checklist book that we said felt very clinical this to me felt much more kid-like and lived in um i mean again in some ways that are kind of ridiculous i mean everybody acts like kind of a moron in this book which is definitely on my what the fuck list but but i don't know it felt more fun to me in a way i guess i don't know so i'm i'm really i'm really curious to hear what left you cold what was boring to you what what you didn't connect with I think the the biggest thing, and I think it's more just like I got sort of set on the wrong track when I started reading. The first like three chapters, like nothing happens. Like That's the entire true. entire second chapter is just Marianne explaining who all of her friends are, and it's very very detailed. We get all of the backstory on you know Mimi passing away and Stacy's parents getting divorced, and you know Jeff coming with Don to Connecticut and then moving back to California. Like we get like the whole litany of, like, everything up through book 30 in this series. And, like, I understand that we always have to have that reintroduction for the kids that might be picking this book up as their first one. But, like, there's so little story, you know, and as we've talked about before, you know, you have 150 pages, 15 chapters to tell 
a cohesive story, you know, and basically from from beginning to end. Obviously, there's the um to be continued in this one, but I still feel like you know from the beginning to the end, we do get a complete story of you know the engagement and the wedding. But because we have lost effectively a fifth to a quarter of the book on nothing, you know, like there's not even any real setup in those first few chapters. I just felt like that meant that the rest of the book had to like rush through. And it was like, and, you know, now I'm planning this birthday surprise. Now we're engaged. Now we're planning a wedding. Now we're married. And like, you know, it's it's hard enough for these books to like hit all of the beats of a story, but when you lose like the first big chunk of the book with nothing happening, it just I, I think that I just was annoyed initially and it just sort of carried through. And because everything was so quick, you didn't really to me get a chance to like really feel like you were experiencing it or like enjoy it in any real way. And I maybe that is sort of what leads itself to you know, the the what the fuck list that you've put together because it is so just like scattershot. And I I think that's why I just didn't enjoy it very much because I I wanted to have more of an opportunity to really like be there with Dawn and Marianne, like enjoying their parents getting married and like celebrating becoming sisters. But because we have to lay the groundwork for them to fight once they actually live in the same house, there's like a lot of up and down. And it just felt very like, yeah, up and down, like and scattershot like it just felt like there was a story but like it didn't feel like a good story to me because it was just all over the place trying to do all of these different things all at the same time if that makes sense it 1000 percent does i i see exactly what you're saying and you're certainly not wrong like i definitely noted that reading the electronic version it's 171 pages i got to page 71 and they still weren't engaged. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought this was the wedding book. Right. And I think that I think that, that might have been sort of the big hang up for you there is the book title is The Great Romance. We thought that this was the wedding and and the wedding really is kind of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And for you, that led to some mismatch in expectation versus what the book delivered. And for me, I found that kind of delightful in that it was not a retread of the same wedding stuff that we've – because I just feel like we've been there, done that, mm-hmm. and not too long ago. I, I mean, I guess Christie's Big Day was a while ago at this point. Yeah, it was like 24 bucks ago, so it's been a while. Okay, fair enough. But it just feels like we've done those beats, so I like this different – perspective i like it like they they call out in there that you know we're very different people than Edie and watson and because why can't i think of her actual name in the books in the show now elizabeth just, Edie. <laughs> elizabeth thank you but she's Edie to us <laughs> but she, oh, she'll always be Edie to us that's why I just fully was like i can't even think of what it, it anything else in mm-hmm. any case they're like we're very different people and i appreciated that i liked that there were different perspectives i like that like we called out that you know when you know you know when you're adults it's it's sort of different there's just no sort of no must no fuss this felt like a more business like oh, that and that sounds awful but more practical i guess is the word i'm looking for version of adult you know mixing their lives together rather than the like romantic version of it. And I appreciated that because that makes total sense to me for Richard Spear. And it also makes total sense to me that that would really sort of set the stage for Mary Ann's disillusionment of what she thought this was going to be. And I think that ties in really nicely with this difference of, of this idea of what she thought 
being sisters with Dawn was going to be like versus what the reality is and what the reality is going to even continue to be in the next one. And again, maybe this is just me like reading way too much into it, but I really appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, I I do appreciate that it's not the same exact situation that we were in with with Edie and Watson, but like, I don't, it just, I don't know. I, I, I wanted them, I think it was more, I didn't feel it. I think that it goes to what you were saying. It felt more businesslike. And even though it's not, Richard and Sharon both just seemed like whatever. Like, uh, okay, yeah, let's get married. Like, obviously, like, they had talked about it before, the, you know, surprise engagement. They had even talked about no ring. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand from, like, an objective third-party position in real life or otherwise like not everyone's going to have the same feelings about getting married or planning their wedding especially if it's a second wedding but like neither of them seemed like they really wanted to get married you know like it it really just felt like it was like well might as well do this you know like i get and maybe it's just because especially now that we have the series and richard and sharon are so fully fleshed out and like warm mm-hmm. and you can tell that they really do love each other and they care about each other and like you know Richard gets all you know flustered dealing with her and like I I think that because the way that they are in these books is just very flat and you don't really get a lot of their you know emotional feelings and you know internal monologue type I mean, not monologue, but, you know, like their internal life, you know, you don't really get any sense of that from these books with most of the adults that we deal with, if any, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think, I think maybe that's really where my frustration comes from is that when it was Edie and Watson's wedding, you got enough from Edie to know that she was very excited about this. When you look at this book, you don't, you only get the excitement from Marianne and Dawn and like, you don't really get anything from Richard and Sharon and they're just sort of like yeah well you guys are talking about like a big wedding and a reception and like we're not going to do any of that and so it's just like then why did you even let them go down that road and like work themselves up if that's yeah I don't know I just I'm just frustrated with the way that the adults didn't seem to care about anything (laughs) I get that and I, it, that makes total sense. So there are a couple of things. There's another thing that you said earlier that I didn't acknowledge that is absolutely true, is that it does feel very scattershot and table setty. Like, this is very clearly a part one. Like, that's why I almost feel like it's a little bit unfair to judge this book mm-hmm. totally on its own, because we're only getting half the story. And from my perspective, what I think this is so fascinating, because what you just described To me, I really liked about the book. I found nuanced. And again, now I'm like, maybe I was just like getting way deep. And it's been that kind (laughs) of a week. But to me, I read it as this book is from Marianne's perspective. And so Marianne is like heard wedding and engagement and immediately like took off and started fully fantasy land. Her romantic tendencies took over and she just had this whole vision of what was happening in her head that inevitably what Sharon and Richard are actually doing is a huge disappointment. So like, I don't, I did not read it so much as they were actually less enthused about it. I read it as from Marianne's perspective, they are not as excited about it as she is and as she believes that they should be more importantly and i think that that's part of like i said what it goes to 
um, some of her disillusionment about the reality of what it's going to be like to live with Dawn. I think that that sort of, again, this is where I'm like, maybe I'm going so crazy, but like it feel, it felt to me intentional that it, it was absolutely the opposite of what Marianne thought it was going to be in order to set up that, that same uh, conflict, that same bubble bursting that's going to be happening with Dawn that starts in this book and really happens in the next book. So, um, but like I said, there were plenty of things in here that I was like, this makes no sense. I certainly noted all of the the speed with which everything happens, like just utter nonsense, e- even if they are more practical and, and business-like and even cold, if you will, about it, because I can definitely see how that would come across it, because it's like so matter of fact and so quick that, yeah, your point is definitely very well taken. I think- Maybe I was just really eager to like this or just the mindset it, I was in. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I don't think when it comes to the way that Richard and Sharon are portrayed, I don't think that the book was consciously deciding to show them as not caring because Don or because Marianne was narrating. But I do really think that what you're saying with, you know, Marianne having these grand ideas about what the wedding is going to be and what it's going to be like to have this new blended family. I think that is a hundred percent true because I, I definitely felt that, you know, we've got big expectations for Marianne when it comes to what this whole new arrangement is going to be. And I think we definitely needed that because reality is going to set in very quickly <laughs> when they're actually living in the same house and in the same room. And I think that um, I think it'll be very interesting to compare, you know, Dawn's reactions in the next book, you know, knowing who Dawn is as a character and that she's very sort of go with the flow, roll with the punches, try to anticipate what other people need and give that to them and be there for them in the way that they need and maybe put herself second when it comes to, to making other people feel more comfortable and more happy. And I think, you know, the fact that it's called Dawn's Wicked Stepsister, I think is going to be very – I'm very excited to read this next one. And I, like you've said, I feel like maybe part of the reason why I didn't like this one as much is because I would have liked to get the whole story of both books together. But I think it's going to mm-hmm. be very, very interesting to see how how Dawn sort of relays the situation in the next book, knowing how we have seen Marianne start to portray their relationship and their interactions in this book. You know, because there are definitely parts of this where she – you can tell that Dawn is sort of like apprehensive about what's going to happen and – Dawn is also apprehensive about what's going to happen, but then they sort of get to a place where they're like, oh my God, it's going to be so great. Like we can share a bedroom and it'll be like a sleepover every night and Tigger can sleep in your bed some nights and sleep in my bed some night. And then our, you know, wardrobes are going to double. And like, yes, also you have never lived with someone else 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like it's not like a sleepover. So I think, Mm -hmm. I think that I, I have a feeling that there's probably going to be in the next book a little bit more of that before we really get to like Dawn completely being like, Marianne's the worst. I can't take this anymore. Like I, I think we're going to get a little bit more of the, the up and down as we get into the next one. But I, I'm very excited to be able to sort of compare and contrast Marianne's reactions in this book as compared to Dawn's reactions in the next book, for sure. For sure, indeed. I think you're right. I think that one of the things that I found really interesting is that there was an element of both Marianne and Dawn 
kind of fooling themselves, if mm-hmm. you will. Like, like you said that there was like, they both recognize would like have these moments of maturity and recognition that, that, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. And then would sort of, to me, it felt like they were willfully like pushing past it and be like, nope. Nope, we're just going to pretend like this is going to be all great. Well, and even at the at the reception, when they finally do decide to live together, you know, they're laughing and Dawn is laughing so hard she started to cry. And she turns to Marianne and says, Marianne, when we're not fighting, we have so much fun together. Don't you think we should share my room after all? We could stay up late at night and talk with all the lights out. We could share secrets. We could do our home to get homework together. Isn't that what sisters do? I've always wanted a sister. So like, yeah, the, that willful blindness, like – isn't that what sisters do? I can't wait to have a sister, like not thinking about the realities of what it's actually going to be like. They're both sort of, you know, they they think about it and they realize this is a terrible idea. And then they're like, oh, but wouldn't it be so fun? They have this like idealized version of it where they don't think about what it's actually going to be like. And I, I think that it's interesting that we like, like we've both been saying, like both of the girls have their moments of like, Let's be realistic about this. No, no, no. It's going to be so much fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. You know, like, I just, I I really appreciate that it's not like one of them is very into this idea and the other one is not. Like, they're both sort of going through these cycles together and, you know, fighting and then being like, no, we're the best of friends. We should be living in the same room because we're sisters now. Like, I I just love it. (laughs) So maybe I don't totally hate this book. I'm bringing you around to my side. Um, one of the things that I love about that is we get some really honest interrogation of siblings and sibling rivalries in this book. So, like, we talked about the Marilyn and Carolyn of it before, but they were united in hating that they were being treated alike. They weren't fighting with each other. So that's, like, a completely different spin on this one. And really, it started me thinking, like, looking back, I mean, we see, like, the triplets, you know, messing with Nikki sometimes, a little bit of picking on things there, but, you know, some strife a little bit within the Brewer-Watson home, but very minor. Like, there hasn't been a real interrogation of more contentious family relationships. In general, everybody just sort of gets along with each other really well and loves each other really well. And I certainly know that that was not that is not the experience of everyone. So I know we've sort of talked about our families, like our siblings before. Kate has a brother. I'm the oldest of four, and there's a pretty big gap between us. My brother and I are two years apart, and then it's six years, and then another two years between my younger brother and younger sister. So I was dying as I was listening to this to know about you and Brian, Kate. How how were you guys like as little kids? I know we talked a little bit about like older, but like as when you were little like this, how was your relationship? I mean, we were definitely like like the siblings you would see on a sitcom. Like we would get along one day and the next day we would be fighting like cats and dogs. Like it was it, yeah, it was very like a cliched like sibling relationship because you know, older sister, younger brother, you know, like he always annoyed me. He thought I was too bossy like trying to tell him mm-hmm. what to do all the time. So, I think it's it's just sort of interesting you know, especially with the the Babysitter's Club, since we have so many different, you know, age groups and dynamics and, you know, number of kids in the families and boys and girls and all of that. And so I feel like in in most pop culture, there's always, not always, but a lot of times there's like two siblings and, you know, if the girl's older, then 
she's always one way and the younger brother is always the, you know, another mm-hmm. way. And so I, the one thing I do appreciate about these books is like you do get a lot of different family dynamics because even when I was growing up, a lot of the kids that I knew – there were two kids, whether it was a boy mm-hmm. and a girl or two girls or two boys or, you know, however they're arranged. But, like, two was pretty typical in the town that I grew up in. So I always really – one thing I always loved about the Babysitter's Club was getting to see, you know, like a kid – a family with eight kids. Like, that was not yes. a thing that I ever really came across, and let alone a family of eight with three that are triplets like it was it was always just so wild to me to read these books and you know read about the pikes or read about the barretts when you know especially in dawn and the impossible three where things are just crazy and you know the kids just sort of do whatever they want and like i i always i was always sort of just like in awe of the things that the kids in these books got to do whether it was the babysitters or the kids they were babysitting i think you know not that i didn't have a lot of freedom growing up you know like you and I both we we were of the the generation where it was like yeah go outside and we'll see you when you get home and like I because I was an indoor kid like that just never really appealed to me but I always loved reading again I get indoor kid I always loved reading about other kids doing all these like fun adventures (laughs) and like you know finding secret passages in their house and like you know finding a, a locked trunk in somebody's attic and going through it that actually would be like very on brand for me as an indoor kid but like I I just always loved getting to see all of these different ways that families can be and again speaking from a a very specific place in these books like as we've discussed many times like this is not you know every possible option and so I definitely could have expanded my horizons much more as a child reader but what you know in the babysitter's club in this upper middle class, mostly white neighborhood, we still got a lot of variety in the types of families. So I did I did like that as a kid, but definitely could have used a little bit more diversity to help, um, you know, flesh out what I was seeing as a, you know, eight-year-old. But I'd like to think I've grown significantly since then. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. Um, I, I'm pretty sure the, the partners at your law firm would uh, hope as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. The, I should say the fellow partners at your law firm. <laughs> I think that's actually kind of fascinating because I actually had, in terms of like size and diversity of like ages and not so much like we've mentioned uh, races or cultures or things like of that nature, but certainly in terms of somewhat socioeconomic as well. Like I said, I'm one of of four, but my dad's one of 13. I think I may have mentioned that before. And I have 50 first cousins because nobody has just one kid in a Catholic family like that. My mom's family also is pretty big, too. I have eight cousins on that side, which is, you know, more than some people have. Even in my grade school, it was, you know, Catholic grade school. So we had a, a number of big families there. In fact, there was a running joke because there was a family that had a kid in every single grade. So like that, like the Pikes to me looked very familiar. And one of the things I think is fascinating is that I don't know that the, that that really looks like that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I think Mm -hmm. that some of the families that we see in the Babysitter's Club books, if we, I I know they're adapting them for now, but it it feels much more unusual. Like, I feel like the Pike family would raise many more eyebrows now than it did, you know, late 80s, early 90s. But anyway, that's, you know random sidebar. My actual (laughs) point was, 
So that felt familiar. But like you said, I mean, you mentioned you and your brother were like the stereotypical sitcom. I always think like Married with Ch- Children, Kelly and Bud Bundy, you know, that that back and forth mm-hmm. love, hate, like we can mess with each other, but no one else can mess, mess yeah. with us type of deal. Uh, which to me feels far more realistic than this idealized version in the books. So I was excited to get some actual acknowledgement of how siblings fight and those fights can be brutal. Like sibling fights mm-hmm. can be some of the worst and not just like vicious word wise, but vicious physically, <laughs> especially at that young age, like when you're really young kids. Uh, oh man, my brother and I had some doozies. Mm-hmm. So it was I was just really excited to see that as well and to get into a little bit of that with with Dawn and Marianne, especially because Marianne has a tendency to be a little bit of a goody two shoes. And and that is I think sometimes intentional, but sometimes also not, if that makes sense. Like uh, in terms of what was intended by Anna and Martin. Like I think mm-hmm. sometimes she doesn't realize how goody two shoes Marianne is. I, I, maybe that's not a fair assessment, but but I mean, what you're saying is sometimes for the actual story, it make like there's a specific reason that she is yes. being goody two shoes. But then in other situations, it's just sort of like over the top goody two shoes ness for no reason. <laughs> yeah, like even in this one, when she gets the move sprung on her, which is whoa shitty all around. That's mm-hmm. on my what the fuck list. I'm like, okay. Seriously, that was some some messed up parenting there. But even then, she like handles her tantrum in the most mature way possible by not being like, I'm not moving. She's like, fine, I'll go, but I don't have to be happy about it. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that, okay, okay. That's that's like a – that's a bridge too far. Like, I'm sure right, no 13-year-old would be like, yes, you're right. I'm not going to like freak out about this. I'm I'm going to accept it even if I'm not happy about it. Like, yeah, maybe she'd get there, but not like immediately. <laughs> exactly. So like too good for her own good, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. But it the point was that goody two-shoesness has not been interrogated a whole bunch. They've sort of brushed up against it a time or two, but less about the goody two-shoes and more about the sensitive, I guess, mm-hmm. is more where there's been conflict. So I'm super excited to see from Dawn's perspective next week or next book, like you said, Marianne from her point of view, like as you were mm-hmm. talking about that, that's all I could think. I was like, Ooh, I'm very excited to get into that. Well, and especially because we have sort of the foundation laid, you know, when, when the babysitters club is talking about how, you know, Marilyn and Carolyn, one parent clearly favors one of them and the other parent clearly favors the other, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. But Christy says, you know, sometimes that happens because a parent, you know, they appreciate, you know, a child being more outgoing or social and one, you know, maybe appreciates being more inclined musically or something like that. And like, they don't necessarily mean to be choosing a favorite kid, but like, because they react more favorably to certain characteristics, it ends up looking that way. But then Christy also says, you know, when her mom and Watson got married, there would be very specific instances of, you know, her mom being easier on Karen and Andrew and Watson being easier on the Thomas kids because 
you know, you don't want to sort of upset the boat and you want to build a stronger relationship. Because obviously, you know, when when you've had that kid since they were born, whether, you know, adopted or birth or whatever, you know, you have been there through everything. But if you're, you know, a, coming into that kid's life when they're 13 and it's you don't necessarily have that foundation to be more strict or you don't feel like you have that foundation to be more strict. So you don't want your your relationship with that kid is more tenuous because they're new and you're new to them so you don't you don't necessarily feel like you have the ability to you know punish them or reprimand them or whatever in the same way you do with your own kids because you've had that relationship with them so i think that itself is probably going to play into this next book you know Marianne's going to have her goody two shoesness and Sharon maybe is going to give her a little bit more leeway or favor her and that's going to sort of lean into or I guess that Dawn's gonna react poorly to that because it's going to sort of feed into Dawn seeing Marianne getting more favor from her mom and you know Marianne being this goody two shoes and yeah I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping we do get to examine that you know Marianne's goody two shoesness specifically in this next book because I think I think you're right that it's definitely a perfect place for this to come up and actually be looked at and talked about. Oh, man, so much juicy stuff that you just said. I literally started having to keep notes about all the things you've just made me think about. So like off the bat, off your the big idea there about, you know, Dawn and Mary Ann and, and you sort of were talking about how you thought maybe Sharon might be extra lenient on, on Mary Ann. I sort of thought rumblings of issue in sort of the opposite direction in that because I my big – like my big overall what the fuck throughout this whole book is how is this going to work? Like these people, I can, I totally understand the attraction. Mm -hmm. I totally get the opposites attract when you're dating, but like the stone cold reality of is, I think in in the real world, this was not, this is not a marriage that is built to last. Like uh, they are just going to drive each other absolutely bonkers. But that's not our concern. Our concern is the girls. And from my perspective, I think what I see <laughs> getting really problematic is Richard's rules. Like, so the nail polish came up oh, in this yeah. one that they wanted to paint their nails. And Richard said Marianne could do clear only. And Marianne was like, I appreciated that, but whatever. Why well, wish I could have done purple like Dawn. So all of a sudden, they're going to be sisters who have very different mm-hmm. rules for them and I think that that's going to be and I'm thinking that maybe Sharon like lets Richard sort of set the rules at first oh, yeah. to like see what they like to not sort of rock the boat there which would lead to resentment on Dawn's part like she had all this freedom and and responsibility and now all of a sudden she's being treated like a child and I can see that lead to a lot of problems and so then the other thing that that made me think of was Jeff and how he was portrayed in this book and how like he realized we don't he's in, he left right when they were very early dating Tripman was still sort of mm-hmm. the leading contender at that point. So he had met him once or twice but is very clearly awkward, very clearly stiff, calls him sir, whatever. Richard is not a warm and cuddly guy. Jeff clearly had behavioral issues in Connecticut last time. I think rather than Jeff being like you know, on his best behavior, maybe for Dawn, it, mm-hmm. it might bond him and Dawn more against the world. But I think we're brewing to some serious Jeff Richard drama. Mm-hmm. The other thing that that you you were you touched on when you were talking about the the Watsons and the Brewers and how they specifically were treating each other differently 
or the stepkids, you know, sort of like trying to win favor. I thought that sparked to me in this book, Charlie buys his car and he's so very proud of it and how different that is from how it goes in the show. Mm -hmm. Because in the show, as we talked about, we had a big discussion around Watson buying this fancy expensive car for him and what that did and family dynamics and all of that. We don't need to rehash that here. Go back and listen to our prior episode (laughs) to hear all about that. But I find it really interesting that in this book, that plays out completely oppositely in that Watson does not help. Charlie is still responsible for buying his own car. He buys like a super beater and is so, so proud Mm -hmm. of it. And I think that that says something reflective about changing culture too, because I think there was sort of something cool about having a rusted beat up junk bucket, especially if it was one that you bought yourself when we were younger. Mm -hmm. And now I don't know that there's as much, I I don't know. To me, it feels more status symbol-y, you know, nicer cars, but Maybe that's just um, an old woman, you know, <laughs> youths. But anyway, I just, I thought I would call that out because I'm, I knew you had caught that too because so could not be more different. Yeah. Well, and I think I was even sort of reading that. I was like, Charlie didn't already have a car? Like, I, it like didn't even register with me. I Like, in my brain, Charlie has always had his own car, you know, and, and it's always been, you know, sort of like a beater that he got himself. But like, I... I, I guess I I don't know. I mean, I guess he's been driving Christy to meetings using you know somebody else's car in the family. But like when when we read that, I was like, "What, Charlie? What? No, Charlie already had a car." <laughs> like I, I had like a mental disconnect for a second. But like I really did love that it was very, you know, Charlie has worked hard to earn the money so he could buy this car, and he like knows what he's gonna go get, and he just like goes and like Watson's not even with him. Nobody like he doesn't take his mom. Like he knows what he's doing and he just does it and like he's so proud of it. And I think I think you're right. Like back when these books were written, like that was a point of pride for, you know, teenagers to be like, I have this car and I bought it myself with money that I earned by working, as opposed to like you said, I don't know what it's like for kids today. <laughs> but like even when I was in high school, it was very much more like Oh, what you know, what car did your parents buy for you? And like growing up in a very wealthy suburb, like there were there were kids like Charlie that had BMWs and, you know, Audis and ridiculous cars for a 16-year-old to be driving. And still <laughs> there were kids that drove them, which I mean, even even growing up in that town and like being surrounded with that my entire life, it still just like boggled my mind. Like whose parent would buy them a BMW. Like, I, I don't understand. And, I, you know, if you have the money, do whatever you want with it. I'm not trying to, like, shame anybody. But, like, even for me personally, like, I just did not I, – I don't get it. And so I really love that Charlie in the books is, like, taking charge, doing it himself, and, like, is proud of himself rather than his stepdad buying him this $50,000 BMW. I know exactly what you mean. I went to a really wealthy high school, as I've said before, I'm sure. And there was this girl who literally got a BMW convertible for her 16th birthday, had wrecked it within the week. By the next week, she had a brand new Hummer because it was safer. Oh, boy. So Yeah, safer um, for her, but not anyone else on the road, probably. (laughs) Exactly. Or her parents' pocketbook, for that matter. Okay, so... I think, have we covered, like, the big topics? Because I really just want to run through my what the fuck list because I think we're going to – it's going to hit the, uh, some of the things that I know you still want to talk about. I just want to add – before we move to the the what the fuck list, I just want to make sure that we either talk about or that your list includes this. Marilyn and Carolyn with the tape down the middle of their room. Will we be touching on that or should I touch on that now? <laughs> 100%. 
on the list. Okay. Well, let's just go through your list. And then to the extent there's anything else that I can think of, we'll we'll tie it into our sort of random wrap-ups. But I have a pretty good feeling that your list is going to cover everything that I might possibly want to talk about. But let's go. <laughs> okay. So we started off I, – I did this kind of in order. I just went through my notes and like – because I didn't start – it didn't start off too too much. Well, that's because there were like four chapters of nothing happening, as I said. <laughs> fair, fair point. Okay. So first of all – but we did start off strong with Dawn describing her mother as a tall child, which I get is supposed to be funny, but you know how much that's one of my triggers. So I was yes. like, oh boy, here we go. Then – she was talking about how much her mom was dating, and she talked about how people at work kept setting her up. And that rang some really weird bells in my head because I was like, where does that actually happen in real life? I've worked with a lot of people at a lot of places, and never have I had someone randomly be like, I know a person for you. Like, that's something your friends do, but I don't know. It, it just was I one mean, that sort of – Alexis did that with Jeff. Like, they weren't – I mean, they were friendly, but they weren't friends. And now Jeff and I are married. That's true. I was thinking about it from your perspective. I was thinking about the fact that Alexis was setting you up. But yeah, Jeff was fair point, fair point. I just it stuck out that she, like people did it a lot. I, I was like, is this woman like, I don't know. Anyway, Stacy's urine checks was sort of a needle scratch moment. Because I thought to this point, we'd talked about the insulin shots, but we didn't talk about her checking her levels. And I had to Google this. I guess this was a way that some people checked the levels back in the day. But even by 1990, I'm pretty sure that was kind of the outdated method but it just we had never really i think that was so what the fuck it didn't even register with me i just like zoomed past that because you saying that i'm like what is she talking about and i'm sure that it was in the book the version that i read too but like i think my brain just like glossed over that real quick <laughs> yeah it was just such a random detail it was when it's early very early on it's when marianne mm -hmm. in her like 10 page long description of everybody. She just drops in that, you know, Stacy has to manage it. She has to check her urine every day. And I went, what? I'm sorry. Like, we've <laughs> talked about her diabetes quite a bit, and this feels like new information. Yes. Okay. Here's where we get to the big one the very stylish Carolyn haircut that was short with curls down the back. <laughs> it's a fucking mullet. Carolyn's very, in italics, very stylish haircut is a fucking mullet. And I lost my mind. I, I straight up screamed. I was like, what? And that's when I was like, oh boy, we're in for a wild ride. Okay, but like, this is also the book series that described Haley Braddock's rat tail as stylish. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just have to remind you that this is not the first time we got a terrible haircut described as stylish or like impressive in some way i know you were so not wrong but it was just it was it was the fact that they didn't use the word mullet it it was the fact that like it came right after the italicized very stylish and it like took me a second to register <laughs> what that cut would look like and it just oh and then i i was off to the races so then there was the whole ridiculous fight about what to get sharon dawn got all pissy that Marianne did not know that she didn't like cats, which why would Marianne know that? And then, of course, that sends Marianne into the tigger tizzy. But my favorite thing is Dawn thinks a good present for her scatterbrained can't find anything mother is a date book because she thinks she's going to be able to use the date book to help her keep things straight. 
as if that date book is not going to be gone within 20 minutes. Well, and especially because Marianne, one of, after she suggests the cat brooch and, and Dawn's like, no, she's like, oh, well, maybe I could get her a nice pen to use with the day planner that you're getting for her. And Dawn is like, oh, no, she'll lose that. And it's like, you know she's going to lose the day planner too, right? <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. That was the WTF about it at all. I was like, first of all, it was a bad gift. And then on top of that, when she was like, oh, she'll never keep that. I was like, and you think she's going to hang on to that fucking planner? You're out of your damn mind, Dawn. But side note to the gifts, Marianne actually ends up getting Sharon a really like thoughtful and nice gift. So she has Charlie buy a Stony Brook High School ring at his like school store, and she gives that to Sharon because when – Sharon and Richard were in high school. Richard couldn't afford to buy them rings, so they never got class rings or school rings or whatever. And so it's, like, super thoughtful and, like, sentimental and, like, it actually ends up being, like, sort of tying into the engagement because that's part of the reason why Richard decides to get her a ring despite their conversation not to get a ring, which, like, side note, what the fuck, Richard, like, listen to Sharon if she says she doesn't want a ring. But the fact that, like, you know – Sharon, or yeah, Sharon didn't wasn't able to get a ring, and now Richard buys her a ring because he couldn't get a ring, and Marianne also gets her this ring charm. Like I think it was very sweet, notwithstanding the fact that Richard overstepped. Yes, a ton. Just to be clear, it wasn't an actual class ring; it was like a class ring necklace charm, charm yeah. thing. Although that was on my what the fuck list is why was Richard responsible for buying Sharon's class ring? Isn't that something parents usually buy? And they have plenty of money, so. I mean, I can see why he wouldn't have a class ring to give her, and I know that was, like, a thing, but it distinctly says to buy our class rings. You can buy both. Yeah. yeah. Which I thought, I was like, okay, so what the fuck there? Yeah, I I don't know. Well, but it wasn't, it's not a class ring, so, you know, where you can sort of, like, personalize it. I got the impression it was more just, like, the Stony Brook High, high School ring, that, like, everybody gets the same ring when they graduate, if they buy one. Gotcha. It's It's still weird. In any case, it was very strange that he that was somehow him's responsibility. Okay, I'm say I'm skipping over the big one that I know you're dying to get into because we'll save that for last. <laughs> um, next up then is the balloon bouquet at any restaurant with a French restaurant name, and a chandelier should not be used to tie up a fucking balloon bouquet. Literally, Richard goes. Okay, all that's missing is the balloon bouquet. And I started laughing because I thought, I thought he was joking. So did I. That is more humor than we get from Book Richard. Show Richard would 100% say that in a sardonic, like, oh, all that's missing is the balloon bouquet. And like, not because one is expected to arrive before Sharon gets there. Yes, literally, a, they are at Shay, was it Monroe? Shay Maurice. Chez Maurice, even worse, like a fancy French restaurant. And they, it literally, they, this balloon bouquet, helium balloon bouquet shows up and they tie it to the quote chandelier. Oh my God, I almost lost my damn mind. I was like, what is happening in this book? Then Marianne immediately starts off down the bridesmaid's path and wants a straw hat. What is with these fucking straw hats? So that was mainly just a callback, but it really made me laugh. Then was the tape down the room. I was like, okay, did we wind up in a fucking Brady Bunch episode? Like, this is this is tropey even for the this series. But I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. But it does – it did feel very much like something seven-year-old twins would do. That's true. You know, and I guess – like, it's, it's silly, but, you know, they both want to be in the room – 
and neither of them will let the other one be in there alone. And they're trying to like, you know, hold out. I'm going to be in the room. No, I'm going to be in the room. And then Marilyn's finally like, okay, well then I'm going to split this and you can't come in my half and I won't go in your half. And Carolyn points out that the door isn't her half. So Marilyn's never allowed to leave. And Marilyn points out that the closet isn't her half. So Carolyn better get happy wearing exactly what she's wearing because she's going to be wearing it for the rest of her life. And that moment, I laughed out loud. I loved that so much. Because <laughs> Marion points out like, for Carolyn, that's a big deal. Like she's very, she's much more into like cool clothes and fashiony stuff. And so her being trapped wearing the whatever she's wearing at the moment for the rest of her life, which obviously would never actually happen. But like it was just, I was like, and that was perfect. But yes, the the tape down in the middle of the room is a hundred percent Brady Bunch. Like every sitcom from when we were growing up were kids shared rooms, a hundred percent. But I did love it here. <laughs> You're right. That's a really that was a really good gag. The way her face just like immediately was like crestfallen, like oh damn. right. It's like oh no, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it was like very much thinking like Job. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> but so then Marianne's immediate reaction is, oh, you should split your rooms once again. Thirteen year old child wildly overstepping boundaries. That mm-hmm. she straight up told these two seven year old kids that they were allowed to do this. They started making plans. They started moving stuff around without asking the parents. Like, what would have happened if the mom came home and she was like, "I told them that they could change their rooms," and she was like, "Fucking no." Marion at least has the the smarts to realize, like, oh boy, maybe I made a mistake. Fair but of enough. course, Mrs. Arnold is immediately like, yes, that's a great idea. Like, because I, as I was like typing in my notes, I was like, surely Mrs. Arnold's going to be upset about this since Marianne has some trepidation about revealing this to Mrs. Arnold. And then like the next sentence, she was like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, okay, I guess it's fine then. But I, it's just more and more that they just like, the way that they talk to these adults and the adults just immediately came yep. to their demands is hilarious to me. Okay, we're getting to the end. So randomly at lunch, there's a they're talking about Jello versus tofu. And Dawn talks about how Jello jiggles. And then Christy has a meltdown. And she's like, why did you have to tell me it jiggles? No, she told her that Jello jiggles. Yeah. And then, then Christy doesn't want to eat it anymore. She hadn't been thinking about the fact that it actually jiggles. That's what I'm saying. But like the what the fuck is that is that's kind of the point of jello right wasn't that literally the entire advertising campaign in the 80s that jello jigglers like why is she having a meltdown that her jello jiggles isn't that the point of jello <laughs> like why is she upset it uh, maybe i that struck me but i was all about the jello jigglers so that was well, Jello jigglers are not regular Jello. You like make them a different way. Oh, do you? I didn't know that. Yes, <gasps> my mind is blown. <laughs> yeah, regular Jello is different than Jello jigglers. There's like less water or something, and that's why they're more Jiggly? like gummy and like hold together and jiggle. <gasps> yeah, wow. I mean, all Jello does jiggle, yes, but like Jello jigglers are made a specific way so that they hold together better, and you can cut out shapes and jiggle them basically wow wow okay so that's my my new exciting fact for the day i learned something on this podcast every time i love talking to you (laughs) either way though so it may not be quite the the what the fuck that i had it exclamation pointed in my notes but it is still like christy it's jello it's supposed to jiggle like chill out and it's not like it's the first time she's having jello exactly. I'm, I'm sure if we read back closely through these books there would be her making reference to jello jiggling at some point in a prior book so yeah 
It's a little unbelievable that she would be reacting so poorly to Don reminding her the Jello jiggles and Tofu doesn't. Right. So before we get into the big one that I know you want to talk about, the last one was right at the very end of the book when Marianne asked Dawn what her mom did for – did she find something new? <laughs> and Dawn says, yeah, underwear. And I about lost it. I, I have so many questions. Like, I don't even, I don't, I don't, I, like, I, we should not even talk about it because I will conservatively go for three hours about what the fuck is happening in that statement. There are so many things happening there. Yeah, oh my God, that, I lost my mind. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I can't even talk. Let's move on because, yeah, if we, if I start talking, I'm not going to be able to stop talking. So exactly. We'll just acknowledge it, put a pin in it, move on. <laughs> so. The last and most exciting what the fuck of this entire book, <laughs> Gazi Kunka. And the fact that these fucking dum-dums literally had no idea that the foreign diplomat kid, Gazi Kunka. Who was on a plane with a terrorist that tried to hijack it. Who never actually showed up to anything. Didn't exist. Mary Ann is shook. Imaginary! Exclamation point. I, that exclamation point after she says, who knew Gazi Kunka was imaginary? That exclamation point, I felt my soul leave my body. I was like, I do not know what is happening in this book. I genuinely thought that they were playing along. I genuinely believed that they were, like, uh, that she knew very well. I, like, because early on, the first time they introduce it, like Marianne, I thought she I read it as she was clearly skeptical, but like just like playing along for uh Marilyn's sake. But but no. Oh my god, I can't even so I'm I'm gonna need you to take over. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean it's just I, I feel like this is some more of that like plot stupidity that we've seen in other books because clearly Marilyn is being excluded by Carolyn and Carolyn's friends. But if our babysitters think that she has her own friend, so she's not all alone and being excluded by everyone, they don't have to get quite as involved. I mean, obviously, they're they're trying to do what they can to get Marilyn and Carolyn to be friendly again and, you know, want to play together and have the same friends. But I feel like if they had realized, you know, in whatever chapter that was, chapter four, that Marilyn's literal only friend is an imaginary friend and even her sister doesn't like her, I feel like it would have put a pallor over the entire story because Marilyn does have some growing to do too, but if you if she's literally has no friends and, you know, is being excluded from the girls club that her sister is opening or not opening is starting with her friends, like it I don't know. You like it it makes the story more difficult mm-hmm. to sort of see both girls' perspectives. So I feel like it's just it's not so much that our girls are so stupid. It's that the plot requires them to be so stupid for this one because they need to believe that Marilyn has some kind of friendship, that she has some sort of child she can play with that isn't her sister and her sister's friends because otherwise it's just too sad. Totally on board with that. I If if the kid were even a little bit believable, like think Jesse and the super brat, what what was mm-hmm. what was Derek's fake bullies, John, John. Yeah. like that. Sure, it, it, like we bought why Jesse believed that at first. It made sense, but this is mm-hmm. gauzy. It's so outlandish. Kunka. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just that name. I I want to tattoo it into my heart 
It is maybe the most <laughs> perfect name ever committed to paper. I just, I could not love it anymore. I'm so bummed that you did not go on the ride that I did with this book because I had a blast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming around to it. So I don't, my my feelings have improved slightly, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing the Lord's work here. All right. So I I know that I have been like nonstop blasting you with reasons to love this, but I do have a couple other like random thoughts. Do you have anything before we wrap up for this week? Um, just a few random thoughts myself, but nothing major. All right. Well, why don't you kick things off with the random thoughts? Okay. Um, so this is just sort of a random thing I wanted to note from, I think it was chapter two during all of the descriptions of all of the members of the Babysitter's Club in fine, minute detail. One thing I really loved was she said that she told, you know, us, the reader, that both Mallory and Jesse are very talented and that we should read Mallory's stories and we should see Jesse dance. And like, I, again, it sort of goes back to what we've talked about before. Like these books really feel like it's each narrator talking to us as the reader. And I love when we do things like this and it's like, you know, when they say like, no, it, honest, I totally, it definitely happened. But like this thing where it's like, she's so proud of her friends and is like, you should see what they can do. It's so great. I just really loved how it all sort of like came together in that, you know, couple sentences. I literally wrote like a whole paragraph that I was like, mm, I'm not going to get into that today because I had this whole thing about how much I loved and this book in particular did it so well. What we've talked about many times before about how they use that language to really draw you in and make you mm -hmm. feel a part of the story and a part of the club. And there were a couple of times uh, that was one of them. There was another one where at one point she's like, guess what? There was another time that she was like, I should probably tell you, you know, like personally, I think that it's just very much feeling like you are in conversation with Marianne. And I, I'm so glad that you called that out because mm -hmm. I loved it. Loved it a lot. I had two more things. One is, again, just another reference, and it's basically from right after that description of um, Mallory and Jesse. But when they have their next Babysitter's Club meeting, Marion says, Christy Thomas never just arrives. She makes an entrance, like, when mm -hmm. she gets to the Babysitter's Club. I was like, oh, I just love that. Like, And that's definitely something that, like, Marianne would definitely say about Christy. And I just – Again, it just sort of goes to like who these characters are and what their relationships are. And I just love when there's little like call outs like that. I did too. I loved that moment. Love that moment so much. Yeah. It was just, it was just cute. Okay. Last thing. So Marianne, during one of the babysitting jobs, when she's sitting for Marilyn and Carolyn, she brings her kid kit, which includes a game that she created yes! called Marianne's Game of School. And it sounds <sighs> boring as fuck. And I'm going to just read the description so that everyone can share in how ridiculous this game sounds. And apparently Marilyn and Carolyn were very into it, which makes me feel really sad for them because they need more excitement in their life. So I cannot believe that I left this off my what the fuck list. <laughs> I can't believe you did, too. That's why I was like, I have to call it out. Yes, please, please. Okay. So it's called Marianne's Game of School. You roll the dice and have to do things like take extra gym or go to the principal's office or here. If you land on this square, you get straight A's and you can move ahead 10 whole spaces. The object of the game is to make it from September all the way around the board to June. The first person to do that is the winner. I was very proud of my game, in case you couldn't tell. It was the first game I'd invented, and I thought that any kid who was old enough to go to elementary school would like it. I had even found big buttons to use as playing pieces, and I had carefully lettered a stack of cards that said things like, forgot gym suit, move back one space, or teacher makes mistake and you correct him, move ahead two spaces. Yeah, because I'm sure a teacher would love to reward you for calling out a mistake that they make. Right? Oh my god, that 
killed me. Uh, Marion was like obsessed with school in this one on a couple of different levels. Yeah. And it was it was very funny. Yeah, thank you. I can't believe I missed that because <laughs> good Lord, what the fuck is right? Okay, so I'm just going to go sort of rapid fire because I have a whole bunch of little stuff. First of all, we, this is the first mention of the Underground Railroad, but we do finally get confirmation that Don's passage was a part of it. I went back and checked. They didn't actually confirm it. We said we thought maybe that came up later, and they do here. So Underground Railroad, I'm vindicated. Doesn't she just say Don thinks it might have been part of the Underground Railroad? So I don't know that it's confirmed, but at least there's a reference to it. Either way, I at least know where it came from. <laughs> We, I do love, as, as spun out as Marianne gets about Tigger, I do love how much she loves animals. And at one point, she's like, I think Dawn could really use a pet. Yeah. And like, she's like, I think about Tigger all the time and I miss her all the time when I'm not with her. And I'm totally that way about my dog, who it is his gotcha day, one year anniversary today. Yay. I had some Christy thoughts with this one that I just want to go really, really briefly because there's not a huge factor, but I loved that that description of Christy. I agree with that. I, this one I was less thrilled with. She said, Christy has such a big mouth. And I've been thinking about this because they talk about Christy's big mouth all the time. And to be big mouth is somebody who like talks big or like is boastful. And I mean, she's confident, but I don't think of her as a big mouth. I And in this one, Marianne followed big mouth up with, she never seems to think before she talks or something along those lines. And I really think that that's what Christy's thing is more is no filter. Mm-hmm less than like big mouth. So I like small distinction, but distinction. And then I also thought that the way that Marianne handled the wedding stuff with Christy was not great. I'd give her like a C. She even notes that she knew Christy was going to be not upset, but like have mixed emotions mm-hmm. about this news that, you know, it was going to be difficult for her. I think that's the word she used. It's going to be difficult. And she does write Christy that note, but like, don't you think that that would have been something that she should have told her ahead of time, separately, like a one-on-one conversation between the two of them? And, and not even if she didn't want to do that, at the very least, give her a little bit of a heads up because she knows how serious Christy takes the club. She knows when mm-hmm. things deviate. She knows how the Christie's already been feeling left out about her and Dawn. So to leave her out further, disrupt a club meeting, bring in Logan, all of those things are designed to set Christy more and more on edge. Mm-hmm. I'm really actually very proud of Christy that she didn't blow in that room right there because I think she would have had every, it would have been understandable why she just was completely upset. I also thought it was a little bit ridiculous how excited everyone was about this wedding. The way that Logan like leapt across the room and twirled Marianne around was uh, quite quite melodramatic. It was very melodramatic. You are not wrong. <laughs> I totally loved when Marianne is introducing Stacy. She's like, guess what? Stacy's real name is Anastasia. I just <laughs> love that because that's such a perfect, perfect little moment. So in our ongoing tracking of as the way the girls get more and more genius and perfect in everything that they do, Stacy has stepped up from just being someone who enjoyed math to uh, being a math genius. Yeah. When she came back to Stony Brook, she got to like skip ahead in like math classes or something. That was something that was mentioned when in, you know, welcome back, Stacy. It was like, oh, you're so good at math now all of a sudden. Like, please jump ahead. Exactly. So anyway, I thought that was funny. And then two quick things. One is very, very brief. But I said that this one was like super dated in a lot of ways, the Laura Ashley repeated references. But there was also the reference to sun-dried tomatoes, these little salty things my dad really <laughs> yep. likes. And that really made me laugh for a couple of reasons. One, because that was such a thing back in the late 80s, early 90s was the way that, you know, kale was a thing and then truffles were a thing. But it was sun-dried tomatoes for a minute there. And I do love a sun-dried tomato, but would you describe it as salty? I don't know that like, I mean... 
yes, it is, but I don't know that that's the main descriptor I would use of that. But I don't know which what word I use. I wouldn't use salty as the main descriptor. I really dislike sun-dried tomatoes, so oh, well, to me, they're just gross. I think they're sort of like overly sweet. To me, maybe that's why I don't like because they're like obviously they're dried, so they're concentrated. So I don't know. Either way, I, I don't genuinely don't know how I would describe it. Uh, not gross, but they're not my favorite. But they're not gross, but just not salty. Yeah, little salty things is not at all how I would describe sun dried tomatoes. No. Okay. So the very last thing is that one of the things that I just made a pure wild speculation because I did note the way that you did how in-depth and detailed Marianne got with the descriptions of this book. And we know we're at the very end of Anna M. Martin's tenure. We're about to move into this new phase where it's going to be primarily taken over by ghostwriters. And I couldn't help but wonder. So we had this ghostwriter book a couple of, of weeks ago, like we said, with Jesse and the Super Brat. And I wondered, maybe that was like a test, like to see how that would go over, how that would do. It seemed to go well. So now Anna Martin wants to finish big with like a, you know, two-parter is sort of her finale and send off. And they probably put a lot of promotion around it. So maybe they put in some extra details in the front because they're thinking that this is going to be a jumping in place for new readers since they're doing a promotional mm-hmm. push and then move into this next phase of, of the ghost written, you know, eternal eighth grade. So I, that is, again, I have zero <laughs> actual knowledge, uh, wild, wild speculation on my part. But it, it, it was the theory that made sense in my brain because mm-hmm. this is another one where I noted that, I mean, we talked about how quick the wedding stuff turnaround happens, but like we're just coming off of the winter vacation super special and I, I have no idea what time of year this is, what what's going on at all. So Yeah, I, like I really do feel as much as we're reading these in like chronological order of when they were released, it seems like the super specials are sort of their own universe like yeah i mean as as much as all of these books are sort of just like it happens whenever unless there's a specific re- you know reference to a date or a holiday or something but yeah I, I would definitely think you know based on the you know the picture on the front of the book of this one and like you know the the outfits that they're described as wearing it doesn't seem like it's the middle of winter so who knows <laughs> okay so i guess maybe move into fashion Yeah, clearly. I've had a lot to say about this one, but I think I've got through it all. (laughs) Okay. Well, as you pointed out, there's a few references to Laura Ashley dresses, which was very of its time. Dawn wears a flowered Laura Ashley dress. She later buys a Laura Ashley sailor dress to wear to the wedding, and uh, Marianne wears the earlier flowered uh, Laura Ashley dress to the wedding. So lots of Laura Laura Ashley all around. But there are two specific descriptions I wanted to read um, on top of just sort of that general Laura Ashley reference because there's a very, very long description of Claudia, which I think is very on brand for Marianne since we know how aspirational Claudia's fashion is to Marianne. So... Claudia is one of the coolest people I know. She has an artistic flair that extends to her clothing and hair and just generally the way that she looks. What I mean is that Claude is a terrific artist. She can paint, draw, sculpt, make collages, you name it, and those talents show up in her appearance. She always wears the trendiest outfits. For instance, at our last meeting, she was wearing layers, a shocking pink tunic over a white shirt with pink and yellow umbrellas printed on it. 
Over the tunic was a wide, low-slung yellow belt with a pink plastic buckle. The shirt, but not the tunic, was tucked into a pair of black knickers, and below the knickers were yellow stockings. Then there's her hair. Claude's hair is something else. Her family is Japanese-American, and Claude has this shiny black hair. But her hair isn't just shiny and dark. It's long. And Claude couldn't find a million ways to wear it. At the last meeting, she had divided it into five braids and had woven pink and yellow ribbons into the braids. Claudia also has dark almond-shaped eyes and super creamy complexion. She is so cool. As always, gotta love the yikes description of Claudia, but the fashion definitely enjoyed the (laughs) pink and yellow explosion that was that outfit. Oh my god, I know. And I just, I love, so Marianne ranks everybody's fashion choices Mm -hmm. and it's so sweet. I just loved it so much. Yeah, it was great. I I I copied that, but not in the fashion section, but I feel like it's relevant to explain where she ranks everyone in fashion. Okay. If if Claude's fashion sense could be rated a 10 and Christie's a 2, I guess I must be about a 6, maybe a 7. And if Claudia's fashion ranking is a 10, then Stacey's must be a a 9.5. Her clothes are amazing too, but she doesn't have that artistic flair that Claude does. I love it. I love it's it too. So sweet. Yeah. Well, and so sweet. I I'm not necessarily sure I would go all the way up to a seven for Marianne. She tries. She's no. doing better. But if Christie's a two, Marianne's definitely not a seven. <laughs> exactly. I was gonna say maybe a five six. Yeah, five six. Um, like six at the the highest. Not a seven. <laughs> and like she can pull off a seven when. Stacy or Claudia pick her outfit for her. Right. But I wouldn't call her as a seven in terms of style sense. Exactly. I mean, as we saw in Logan Likes Marianne, she wears the same outfit twice <laughs> because she can't be she can't figure out something else to wear. Exactly. Okay. A lot of the descriptions are sort of like conceptual, like her idea of the bridesmaids' dresses and like there are a lot of references to clothes, but not as many sort of detailed descriptions, which is a little frustrating and I expect more from Marianne. But I did want to touch on the dress that Sharon picked out to wear for the wedding. Because I think it's not necessarily something I would wear, but I think it is a good description of a dress for a second wedding for someone like Sharon. So mom picked out a beautiful pale pink dress. This is Dawn to Marianne. So that's why she says mom, but it's Sharon. So (laughs) Marianne picked out not, I can't talk today. (laughs) Mom picked out a beautiful pale pink dress with this beaded design all over it. It had a drop waist. It looks sort of old fashioned, like something from the 1920s. Like I could see that dress in my mind. And I, I like the, I like the idea of it. As a, like a second small second wedding dress. Yeah, I like it. I, like I said, I did not have nearly as much objection to the way that the wedding played out. I dug that. I, I like at one point they talk about how they forgot each other for a while, and I I don't know. I found that romantic that they they did they you know that was their past and they they loved each other for that time, but then moved on completely and to have come back and found each other, but not you know need to make it a big thing. I, I thought it was lovely. So um, I thought the dress matched that emotion nicely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. So any other final club business? Well, so normally this is where we do predictions, but I think we've basically been talking about, you know, what's coming next mm-hmm. throughout the whole conversation. So I think we've sort of done our predictions. So let's skip that and instead just let the people know where to find us. Okay. Well, if you don't already know, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Generation BSC, or you can email us if you have lots of thoughts that won't fit in a, a tweet or a DM. You can email us at generationbsc at gmail.com. 
So with that, I'm Kate Plasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to-